Him. Welcome to Creekside Church. We're glad you're here. You know, as we were putting the songs together, it really just all kind of came together, a focus on kingship, on Christ as our king. And so we want to we keep that theme in mind as we sing. Yeah, we think about him as a baby this time of year, but he is our king, and he was, he was our king even when he was born. So it's a very amazing thing. Psalm 92.8, but you, Lord, are on high forevermore. Some versions say, eternally reign or something like that. You, Lord, are on high forevermore. All right, we have a special treat this morning. The, the Sunday school kids have been working on some songs, and they're going to join us now with those. Now, they're not, they're not here to perform, okay? They're here to worship with us. And so it might look a little different than you're used to seeing, but... Um, they're going to join us and um, encourage you to, to listen as they do that. Um, we're we're going to start with Joy to the World. Joy to the World was actually written based on Psalm 98. So I'd like to just read Psalm 98 while the kids are getting ready here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You might hear a couple of verses that aren't traditional Christmas verses um, as we go here, but we're focusing on what the work that Christ has done. All right, kids, are you ready? Galatians 4, verse 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir.
Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the, let all the earth be silent before him. with us. son and we thank you for this time of year when we reflect on Christ coming as a baby a baby and a child and yet a king and we thank you for that and the wonder of this season and that miracle that you you brought about uh, just tune our hearts to hear from you now as as our pastor comes and open our hearts to your word thank you for your presence among us in Jesus name we pray amen I want to extend a special welcome to you if you're here as family, friends, guests, uh, maybe you're here for the very first time. We just appreciate you joining us this morning as we worship the Lord together. I would just let you know if you're here as a guest that as we uh, pass the offering pouches later in the 
service, we'd just appreciate it if you would just take, there's a tear-off part of the bulletin. If you feel led, you can fill that out and put that in the offering pouch. That's all we'd ask you to put in there as our guest this morning. We're just glad that you're with us. Those of our regular church family, you're sure welcome to fill that out and put it in there. If you have a prayer request or a concern or something that you want us to be alerted to, that'd be great too. I'd invite you to just pray with me if you would. Father, we have been singing about your work in sending your son, and we just thank you for the opportunity to continue to worship you through the study of your word. And I I just come this morning, Father, as we look at this passage of scripture, it's heavy with stuff, and I pray that what it brings to our hearts might encourage us and challenge us and change us. And we pray that we would receive it for what it is, the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After spending several thousands of dollars, some folks we know had a geothermal heating and cooling system put in to their house. And in a very short amount of time, they were experiencing all sorts of problems. Closer inspection led to the discovery of at least 40 violations of building and electrical code regulations, and many other problems that were the direct result of installers who just didn't know what they were doing, disreputable people. They had made a bunch of mistakes, and it all had to be redone. And they weren't responsible or couldn't be hired to do it because they weren't legally certified and they weren't capable of doing the job. And I say that because We want to make sure we avoid the same mistakes in our spiritual lives that this family made with their physical property. We want to get it right. We want to get our understanding of faith and our belief system down right. Because if we make a mistake with regard to what we believe and who we believe in and where we put our faith or our trust, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell. We don't want to make that mistake. So we want to make sure we've got it nailed down correctly, that we've got it done right. And the credibility of the faith system which we purport, that is Christianity, is linked inextricably to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His identity is the basis upon which we authenticate his ministry and his message and all that he did on this earth and his mission. And so we want to look at his identity and discover who he is and so we can have credibility in believing what we believe. In order to do that, we have to look at some passages of Scripture and look at history and look at all sorts of things. And we know that at the time Jesus appeared on the earth, the Jewish people were expectantly, eagerly anticipated the arrival of, but really didn't understand the identity of, were confused about the identity of their Messiah. And Matthew, writing to this predominantly Jewish Christian audience, clarifies things, not only for them, but for us, because he uses these kingly credentials that he establishes in Matthew chapter 1 to prove to the world then and now, to his world and ours, that Jesus is the King and Savior of all the world. And so I invite you, if you have your Bible or you have your phone or a device or you want to reach under the seat in front of you and grab the Bible, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read through the text of Matthew chapter 1. This genealogy, I know you all juiced up about learning about a genealogy. You know, if you really want to get excited, you can go back to the book of Numbers or you can go to First Chronicles and you can read a bunch of genealogies and you kind of go, what in the world is that all about? Well, we're going to dig into one this morning. I'm excited about it. I'm going to read the text and then we're going to look at three reasons Three compelling reasons to believe that Jesus really is the Christ and He really is the Son of God, our Savior. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob, and to Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Amenadab, and to Amenadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam Abijah, and to Abijah Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat Joram, and to Joram Uzziah, and to Uzziah was born Jotham, and to Jotham Ahaz, and to Ahaz Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh, and to Manasseh Ammon, and to Ammon Josiah, and to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and Shealtiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abiad, and to Abiad Eliakim, and to Eliakim Azer. And to Azer was born Zadok, and to Zadok Akim, and to Akim Eliad, and to Eliad was born Eleazar, and to Eleazar Mathan, and to Mathan Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, fourteen generations generations. The first compelling reason that I see in the text for accepting that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, not just the Savior of the Jewish people, but of people from all nations, is this assertion that's made in verse 1. And the assertion of Jesus as our Savior, the text begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's a title for verses 1 through 17 for sure, which reveals the origin, identity, and mission of Jesus, but it also launches us into the entire book of Matthew where these themes are recurring. So it introduces, yes, this one section, but also the entire work. Now, Jesus is the name we see first in the text. And most of you know, many of you know Jesus. That, that's the, the meaning of Jesus' name is Jehovah saves. That's the contraction of Jesus. When I was a kid growing up, a child growing up, we, uh, were, we moved lots when I was growing up. And so the one time we were moving, our parents kind of tried to make it a little more palatable by promising us a pet. And so we got this mongrel dog uh, from the neighbors that was a newborn puppy and we named the puppy Snuggles. Now why do you think we named the puppy Snuggles? It's pretty obvious, right? Because she snuggled. Well, Jesus' name is just as obvious. He is named Jesus because of the purpose of his life. And Matthew declares it. We'll look at it uh, later, but it's in verse 21 of chapter 1. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. And not just the Israelites, but his people from all nations. He will save them from their sins. Interesting. The Jewish people were looking for a savior. But not a savior from their sins, but a savior from slavery from the oppression of the Roman rule. But he came not to save us from Roman rule, but from the rule of sin. Slavery to sin. The power of sin and the penalty of sin. Jesus came to deliver us. Next, his name is Christ. He is Jesus Christ. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed one. Interesting, in the Old Testament, they would, this special term was given to those who were anointed as prophets, as priests, as kings, and yet Jesus was anointed as all three, prophet, priest, and king. And it was a designation specifically that alerted them to the fact that this is the one who was promised as the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the, the Messiah, from the line of David, the Messiah king. And then the text says he's son of David. Jesus is declared to be of the royal line of the king who would be the Messiah. Uh, I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. When your days are complete, this is uh, Nathan speaking to David, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up for you descendant after you who will come, no, notice your descendant who will come after you, who will 
come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me and he, when, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Jesus is the one that David was promised this, this king who would come from his line and so we see that he was from the son of David. Jesus was from the son of David. It's an assertion. He's declaring this is be true. He's the son of Abraham. Why is it important that he's the son of Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the first person to whom it was promised that he would have a descendant that would be this deliverer. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, after he had offered up Isaac and sacrificed or was willing to sacrifice him, we read these words. And in your seed, actually it doesn't say seeds, it says in your seed, okay, so what you see on the text is not correct. It is in your seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now who is this seed? I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but you can write this down. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We know the seed is the person of Jesus. He is the seed that was promised to, to Abraham would have this seed in him. Jesus' connection to both David and to Abraham should solidly solidify him as the, the one who was promised. He's the one who was, we told was going to come and be the Messiah. And what was he come to do? To save his people from their sins. Well, that's how, how was he save us from our sins. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We're delivered from the penalty and power of sin by our trust in this Jesus, who is this promised Messiah. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 it says that uh, you are the, uh, for all the sons of God through faith, we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He's the one who saves us, promised he'd save us from our sins. That's his name. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, deliver us from our sins. This is the person of Jesus. And you say, well, okay, that's the assertion. I mean, that's what I get from verse one. He's asserted to be it. Uh, some of you may be seen this infomercial. The, uh, the guy that has this uh, boat, and the bottom of the boat is the, uh, uh, a screen door or a door, right? And he's out on the water, but he's used flex seal. That's this magic potion that he puts to seal the, and the bottom of the boat. That's his assertion. Now he's trying to prove his assertion. Well, what Matthew does is he makes an assertion that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and then he sets about to prove it. And that's what verses 2 through 16 are all about, is the ancestry of Jesus as our Savior King. And he traces the ancestry from Abraham to David to establish his credibility. You can say it anything. You can say anything, but you have to prove it. Uh, I can tell you that my ancestry can be traced back to the people who came on the Mayflower. But in order for me to prove it, I must find the names of those whose lineage I can trace back to the log of the ship. You can say anything, but you have to prove it. And so we have the evidence that's here. The genealogy that's listed here is factual. But it's not exhaustive. And it's not always exactly chronological, but that's because its purpose is primarily theological. It's to prove a point. That this person, Jesus, that we're mentioning here, Christ, is the King of Israel, the Messiah promised, the Son of God, our Savior. That's what he set out to do. Now, you read verse 17, if you read it with me, if you listen to it, you realize it's just three sets of 14. And the first set of 14 is from David, or from Abraham to David. Well, for what happened from Abraham to David? Well, a whole lot happened. You know, they went into Exodus, and they got out of Exodus, and then they went back to the Promised Land, and then they crowned David as king. So it's kind of a, a history of the establishment of the kingdom, and that David is the king. And then we go from the exile, uh, from David to the exile. Well, that was a dark period. From David to the exile, things went downhill. They tanked, you know. It was rebellion, degeneracy, destruction. Uh, they needed a savior. And then from the exile to Jesus, it's like, it's, yeah, they're still in a bad way, but finally the deliverer comes. And so we have it. And so in these verses, I see at least two ways that the two criteria that the Messiah, that Jesus meets, to prove he is the one that was claimed to be in verse 1. 
First of all, we see his humanity. The, the, the line of Jesus has to originate with Abraham. Okay, He's the father of Israel. But now you notice in verse 2, it says, To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac, Jacob. And to Jacob, Judah, well, and his brothers. I like the way he says it, and his brothers. Why does he just, and his brothers? Well, there were several of them, right? There's 11, 12 altogether, 12 boys. Why was he only just say Judah? Because the king of Israel comes through Judah. So he doesn't mention everybody. That's why, so it's incomplete, but it's accurate. All right? And then we see that Matthew goes on to mention, and this is the uh, strikingly interesting to me, but Matthew's unconventional but intentional inclusion of four, now you can count them, four Gentile women around whom some scandal originates or circulates, that's just shocking. But it's significant because it helps us to establish without a beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really is human, not just any human. So I want you to look at, look at the text. If you see the first woman that's revealed is, is Tamar. Now, who is Tamar? Now, I'm just going to give you the flyover. You can look at it. Genesis 38, if you want to write it down, Genesis 38. But Tamar is the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah who prostituted herself in order to raise up children in the name of her husband, her late husband who passed away. Okay, so there you go. I mean, that's kind of it. Um, you know, this is kind of like the stuff that, uh, if you read down through this genealogy, if you're honest with yourself, this is stuff that you probably, you know, and, and it's interesting that all the children are here, but so you're going to have some, uh, some things to explain in your own uh, age-appropriate uh, uh, stuff. You know, you can uh, explain this to your kids age-appropriately, but this is the Bible, okay? So you got Tamar, and then things get a little bit worse, uh, the scandal continues. Uh, the, the pedigree comes under further scrutiny by the mention of Rahab. Now, that, she didn't just, this is just not a one-time thing. This, is a, this was her profession. You know? So here's Rahab, uh, who's a professional. And uh, she was there in Jericho and delivered the spies because of her fear of God. And then we read here in the text that this Rahab escaped destruction and she becomes the mother of Boaz. <laughs> and Boaz was the great-grandfather of David, of whom Jesus is a descendant in order to be the Messiah. Oh boy. But it gets worse, or more confusing, or more complicated, because next we find Ruth mentioned in the text, in verse 5. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, that's verse 5, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Now, we all know Ruth. You know, she's the loyal, uh, you know, daughter-in-law of Naomi. Yeah, that's true, but where was she from? Moab. And so it's likely that her Gentile pedigree at least tainted her loyalty. She wasn't a Jewish woman, but she was in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus. And so when we get to verse 6, we see that all of these, that Jesus Christ traces his connection to David, the king, through all three of these suspicious characters in the text. But there's one more outcast in the royal bloodline. And her name is not even mentioned. But we know who it is when we read verse 6. And it says in verse 6, And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba. Now, the storyline around her is like major scandal. I mean, this is the stuff that you find, you know, um, TNT has drama. Well, uh, this is like drama, you know. This is like a Netflix original movie uh, that's, uh, you know, that we wouldn't let our kids watch because of the content of it. But here we have Bathsheba. So she is the one who David took to be his liaison 
Before, while she was still the husband, wife of Uriah the Hittite, they, she became pregnant. So he had the husband off and then married the woman and the child that they conceived died. And then she gives birth to David's next son, Solomon. And all of this is in the text unconventional, unorthodox, not usual for any women to be mentioned in the genealogies. But here we have four of them, and around all of them there is some sort of scandal circulating, or could be. And it leaves me asking the question, why? You know, one thing I learned several years ago after my, my, my grandmother passed away that they were, our family had a bunch of books and, you know, genealogy stuff and all this stuff. I learned, much to my chagrin, that somewhere down the line in my family history, somebody had been a slave owner. It's not the kind of thing you, like, put out there for publicity. You know, we didn't post that on Facebook. You know, didn't, didn't tweet that one out, you know. Oh, hey, good news. Here we have in the genealogy for everyone in the world to see that Jesus Christ has these people. Now, we all kind of know that. If you read the Bible, you kind of know they're in there, but you just kind of, kind of keep that under wraps. That's not the kind of stuff you put out there for everyone to see. So why is it there? I can think of at least two really good reasons. And the first reason that I think of, not, these aren't the only reasons probably, but these are the two that, that come to my mind and in my study that have, have brought, been brought to bear, that these blemishes in Jesus' family stress his humanity. Isn't it true for every one of us that we got a bunch of uh, you know, Tamars and Rahabs and uh, Bathshebas in our family tree? You know, and I don't, I'm not just picking on the women, okay? We have a bunch of jerk guys, you know, that, that we have good, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's everybody. It's not a sexist thing. We got plenty of sin to go around. We're all the descendants of fallen human beings. Jesus has a bunch of fallen humans in his ancestry. But unlike his ancestors, he's sinless. Unlike the people to whom he came in the world that he entered, he's faultless. He's blameless. He is without sin. And why is it that Jesus is, why is it so important for Matthew to nail down to us that Jesus is a human being? Because Jesus can only save his people if he is of his people. His people are people, humans. He can only save his people if he is a human being. He can only save those who are Subject to God's wrath if he knows what it is to be a human being and to be a perfect, sinless, satisfactorily substitute, which means he has to be human. He has to be sinless or else he'd have to suffer for his own sin. He'd have to be a substitute. He has to be human or he can't be the absolute satisfactory sacrifice. And this is what he does. Peter says it this way, that it was the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ that paid for our sins. And so Matthew wants to make sure we understand that this person we're talking about is really a human being. As, uh, as the movie The National Treasure, which ended up showing the, the stealing of the Declaration of Independence, uh, and they get to the end of the movie and and uh, I want you to see what they, they say towards the end of the movie where Nicolas Cage is turning over the Declaration of Independence. Here's what I want. Dr. Chase gets off completely clean, not even a little posted on his service record. Okay. I want the, the credit for the fine to go to the entire Gates family with the assistance of Mr. Riley Poole. What about you? I'd really love not to go to prison. I can't even begin to describe how much I would love not to go to prison. Someone's got to go to prison, man. Well, if you've got a helicopter, I think I can help with that. I don't know if you could hear that, but he said at the end, somebody's got to go to prison. I mean, somebody committed a crime. Somebody has to pay for the crime. 
And he says, I can help you with that. Well, every human being is guilty of a crime. Somebody's got to go to prison. That's why Jesus Christ came as a human being. Because only a human being can serve the term of other humans who are guilty. And he has to be sinless or else he'd have to go to prison for his own crime. And so the text makes clear that Jesus is a human being. Secondly, the inclusion of these previously ostracized women in Jesus' pedigree, I think, demonstrates his mercy. It, it showcases Jesus' mercy and God's mercy. God's, isn't it unorthodox that God would call these ostracized people, sinful people, like all of us, and I, I mean, I pick on them. Every one of the people in Jesus' line was sinful. I'm not just, okay. But he calls them and particularly points them out in order to show that God calls sinful people to be part of the, of, of the, the descendants, the, the ancestors of Jesus, which indicates that he might also call sinful people to be his descendants. He calls ancestors to be part of his family. Then he might graciously and by God's grace call descendants who are sinful. That's you and me, folks. Descendants are the people who come after. Okay? The ancestors are the ones who come before. So the ones that have come before were sinful, which shows God's grace and mercy in including them in the family tree of Jesus. That he would graciously call those who come after who are sinful, that's us, to be his descendants, that we would be with him forever. We see his humanity in the text. I think we also see his deity in the text. And this, okay, time out. Strap yourselves in because this is going to get a little bit tough. Okay? So you got to put on your thinking cap and follow me. Keep your fingers on the text. All right? So we're going, this deity thing is hinted at and then confirmed in the text but I want to bring you to the point where, where it's, it's hinted at. The 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. That's verses 12 through 16. I skipped over the ones in verse, end of verse 6 through verse 11. That covers Israel's rebellion un, until, you know, that's, that's their, their time of deportation and all that. But we're focusing in on the time from the exile or the uh, Babylon to Jesus. Verses 12 through 16. What's amazing is, if you read with me, and I'm going to skip down to, to verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel. Stop right there. He's like, Jeconiah, I, get, I, mean, I know, I get it. Reading these names is kind of tough. Oh, you got Jeconiah, you got Zerubbabel, you got Azor, and Ehud, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it gets tough. But don't get lost in all the names. This Jeconiah, I want you to look at the screen at, at Jeremiah 22:30. Look at verse 28 first. The Lord says, write this man, Coniah. That Coniah in that verse is the same Jeconiah in this verse. Okay? Coniah in Jeremiah 22:28 is Jeconiah in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. So it's this Jeconiah, if you will. Write him down childless. Now, how does he define childless? This is how he defines it. A man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So none of Jeconiah's descendants can sit on the throne of David. That's a problem. Because you read in the text that it's this Jeconiah who is the forefather of Jacob, who is the father of Joseph, who is the father of Jesus. Uh-oh. No biological descendant of Jeconiah can sit on the throne of David. That's the curse on Jeconiah and his family. None of them will sit. No physical descendant. So what's the solution? Verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says, And to Jacob was born Joseph, now notice the text, the husband of Mary by whom was born Jesus. There, is a, there are a few alterations in the pattern in this genealogy. Almost always we see in what we would have expected there was, and to Jacob was born Joseph, and to Joseph Jesus. That's not what we read. It's a significant deviation from the pattern that was given. 
And that deviation implies very strongly, in my opinion, that this Jesus is not just human, but he's also divine because something else was going on here. He was not the biological descendant of Joseph. Listen, first of all, the focus is not on Joseph as the father, but Joseph as the husband. The husband of Mary. Which turns our attention to the final woman in the genealogy, the mother of our Lord. So the emphasis is not on Joseph as dad, it's on Mary as mother. Which is significant in the text. Um, how many of you know who uh, Kevin Reynolds is? Uh, you know who Kim Reynolds is? Governor of the state of Iowa? Yeah, right. So Kevin is the wife of the governor. Or husband of the governor, sorry. Husband of the governor. So Kevin is the husband of the governor. If I would have said, yeah, let's talk to Kevin, you go, I don't care about Kevin. I don't know who Kevin is. But if we're going to talk to Kim Reynolds, you say, oh, yeah, yeah. So he must, be the, he must be the husband of the governor. Well, that's it. Joseph is like, he's the husband of Mary. Okay? He's just like a husband of Mary. So just deal with it. The focus is not on Joseph. The focus is on Mary, the wife of Joseph. Now notice, secondly, this phrase, by whom was born. By whom was born is a gender-specific feminine reference. So the focus is on Mary giving birth to Jesus. Everywhere else, if you look in the text, it says uh, to, uh, up in the text, when you get to the women you're talking about, and Tamar and, and to Paris was born. And to Paris, uh, I'm sorry, I'm verse 2. And Judah and Judah to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. They're the fathers, she's the wife. Or the mother, okay? Now it's different than that. It's that this is Mary, okay? Mary is the one who gave birth, stressing that Mary was the mother of Jesus, but Joseph was not the biological father. Finally, I'm not reading from the ESV, but if you read the ESV, the ESV translates there are 39 occurrences of the verb was the father of in this genealogy. Was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. In verse 16, it's was born. It changes it. It's not he was the father of, he was born too. Uh-oh, something's going on. It's, it's, it's alerting us, strongly implying that there's some, something else going on here. Matthew points us clearly to the marvel and the miracle of Jesus' birth. Joseph was not and could not be the biological father of Jesus, or Jesus could not inherit the throne. But Jesus had to inherit the throne as the son of a descendant of David. How could that happen? Well, he received his legal claim to the throne through his father, Joseph, who was a descendant of David, so that he was, as a son, as an adopted son, he could gain the legal throne, legal claim to the throne. But he gained his physical claim to the throne through the biological connection to David through his mother, Mary, who was also a descendant of David, through Nathan, which is Mary's genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Now, some of you are like, whoa, you just lost me completely. But let me, let me tell you, this is fascinating stuff. There's a promise in the Old Testament that nobody from Jeconiah's line could sit as a biological descendant on the throne of David. Yet Jesus has a dad, Joseph, who comes from that line. So Jesus biologically could not sit there. But he has to be a descendant, a, a son of someone who has heritage, which Joseph satisfies. But he has to be a biological descendant, which only his mother Mary could give him. So the combination of the two makes it almost virtually impossible for this Jesus not to be this Messiah. And you know what's interesting to me? Is what's implied is then actually explicitly stated in verse 18. Read verse 18 with me. We'll jump ahead a little bit. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, notice, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Uh-oh. So Joseph is not the father, biological, of Jesus. And then notice, but she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
so that it was explicitly stated that she was the mother of Jesus. And then we could, I'm not going to, we're not going to go there to Isaiah chapter 9. You can write down Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which are the designations given to Jesus. Wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So through his, the intimation, verse 16, through the explicit statement, verse 18, through the designations in Isaiah 9, Jesus is the Messiah, our Savior. Fully God, fully man. And he had to be fully God in order for him to live as a sinless son of man. In order to die as a human, to sacrifice for our sins and not to pay the price for his own as someone who was sinful. Blow your mind yet? Yeah, it's crazy. But this is the truth. And so the assertion through the ancestry of Jesus is validated. And then in verse 16, I just think it's an affirmation. It's just like, this is 14 generations from, from uh, Abraham to David, and 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile or in Babylon to Jesus. Here he is. I like the way Berner puts it, that this genealogy is a work of theological craftsmanship. So you say, what do you say to people who, like, oh, the Bible's not reliable? And maybe you're one of them. You know, you sit there and say, well, I'm a skeptic. I don't really know about the Bible. I'm not really sure uh, that it's really reliable. It makes mistakes. It has some, some things that are not really right about it. I'm looking like, whoa, look at the remarkable continuity here between promises in the Old Testament, uh, prophecies and promises about this Messiah that are absolutely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. There's a remarkable continuity in the promise and the historical fulfillment. There's deliberate vulnerability. I mean, if I was writing the text, I wouldn't include all that nasty stuff that you kind of have to like, boo, I don't know, that's kind of embarrassing. There's nothing to hide. And then I look at the, the grammatical clarity. The deliberate change of the, to the, 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 the feminine and the different, deliberate change in the, the way things are Stated so that we see that it is Mary who is the mother of Jesus and Joseph is kind of the bit player. Now, he's important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to you know, minimize him. And it's just all this to validate that Jesus Christ, who came as a babe in a manger, is the King of Israel and the Savior of the world. That's why he came. It's... The greatest thing. And if you're here and you're skeptical, I'm just challenging you to look at the evidence and consider it at least. Consider that you need to have been given this gift, this opportunity to put your trust and faith in the Savior of the world who saves us from our sins because our sins condemn us to an eternity apart from Him. And He died to take the price, pay the price that we deserve to pay so that we don't have to pay it. All you have to do is receive the gift. You can open packages on Christmas Day. There's no better package to open, to receive, and to take than the gift of salvation made possible through the person and the work of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, I don't know about you. For me, this gives me greater confidence that what I'm believing is really actually true. It's not just a jump. Not just I'm not leaping off some bridge somewhere, believing, hoping, and hope that I'll be saved. No, there's historical Biblical evidence that this is real, that this Jesus did come. He was the God-man, fully God and fully man, who died to take away our sins. It also inspires me to have courage to live each day. Because what this God says, I can bank on, and I can live my life and trust in Him because He is who He said He was. It gives me courage. And Bob Goff has this new devotional out. Live in grace, walk in love. So, I can live in grace... Because of what Jesus has done, and I can walk in love because of what Jesus has done as his spirit works in me and in you too. Confidence, courage, and also conviction. Hey, it's Christmas. Let's keep Christ in Christmas. Why? Because he is the reason for the season. He is the answer to our problem. He is the solution to what ails the world. And we have the answer we need to share it and shout it from the mountaintops. And I'm guilty, but I'm going to seek to be better, okay, in sharing the love of Jesus. And, and now, you know, we, we, we break bread, we, we drink the cup. Why? To celebrate 
what Christ has done. He came as a babe to die on the cross to give us deliverance. And that's the difference that the Christmas message makes in our lives. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, we invite you to partake of these elements as a remembrance of what Jesus has done to give you confidence, to give us courage, and to help us be convicted and convinced to share it with the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would take these deep truths, you'd wash over our hearts and souls, and that you would touch our lives by your spirit. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's skeptical, doubtful, really doesn't want to trust in you, wasn't, don't want to wave the white flag of surrender and acknowledge their sinfulness as sending them to an eternity apart from you, I pray that they would be broken and turn from their sin and trust in Christ. You've said, but as many as received him, to them give you the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. I pray for those of us who know you. May our hearts be stirred. Father, give us greater confidence that this word and the truths about it are something we can base our life on, live on. Help us to live it out. Help us to share it. We pray in Jesus' name.